All right, well, good morning. Welcome here. My name's John. Um, I have the joy and privilege of uh, being on leadership here, and very glad that you are joining us on this uh, hot long week, or not long weekend, but hot weekend. So um, we're very glad that you're here. We're in a series, we're closing up the series this week, where we've been talking about uh, Jesus and the early church's practice of coming together around uh, the table. And so we've talked about three different tables that we see the early church coming around. The first is the close table. So there's three different circles you can see on this diagram here. And uh, the first one on the left represents the close table, or we call it sometimes the communion table or the Lord's Supper, that we come together around this table. So the early church, and we set apart a time in our week, which is today for us, to come together around this table and recenter ourselves around the story of Jesus. And I was just thinking about that as we were singing the song, There's Nothing Better Than You. Like, we all come in here thinking that there's something better than Jesus. There's something in our lives that have been saying to us all week long, oh, this is better, this is better, this is better. And so we come together today to sing and to remind ourselves that this is the story of God. We lift him up and we sing and we pray with each other and we connect with each other, but we also come together around the table where Jesus is the host, and we are also invited to realign our views of, of what God is and what's most important in our lives. Again, all, of, all, the, the, all week, our lives get kind of off-center. The view of who we think God is gets off-center. And so we come together to the table to remind ourselves that our God is a host, that he longs for us to come to the table, and that he's given of himself to make a meal for us. He's given his, his life over for us to make a meal for us and create space for us at his table. But this table then also extends into the tables that we have in our homes. That's the second circle, the dotted circle, with the home around it. Maybe in Vancouver, that's none of our homes. But uh, it is a home somewhere, not in Vancouver. Um, but we use the, the tables of our homes to extend this table into the world. And so what we do is we take what we have. We, we, we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000, and that's the question that he asks them. It's not, what don't you have? Do you not have a house like that? Do you not have a really big kinfolk table where you can roll it out for all your neighbors? Just what do you have? And are you, are you willing to take that? Are you willing to bless it? Are you willing to set it apart? Break it. Give it for others and then eat together to create space around the table uh, that, that God's presence can become palpable. And then last week we started looking at the third table, which is this half-circle table, which is the tables in our neighborhoods and in the world, the places that we're invited to go as guests where God is also present and we're invited to partner with him to make him known. And so we started looking at this third table by uh, looking at Luke 10, a different passage where Jesus sends out the 72. So we started that last week, and I'm just going to read it again for us this morning. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and city where he himself was about to go. And he told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road, whatever house you enter. First say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Do not move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. This is God's word. So we, we focused on four things, or I said there's four things I want to focus on from this passage. The first is the call, and then the context, the character, and then the communication. Last week we looked at the first two, that there is this deep call 
from God. Not only to draw us to the table, we talked about Luke 15, this picture of God who's waiting for his son to return and wants to draw him into this feast. So there's this draw of God into the table, but in the same way, when Jesus uses the word send in this passage, which he uses three times, he's drawing us to leave the table, to go and be sent into the world to invite other people back. So there's this call that Jesus has. And then the second is we looked at the context The disciples, these 72 people, were sent out into the towns and the villages that were nearby that Jesus was about to enter. Um, But we are not sent into those same places. We have to think about what the context is that we are actually in. And so we spent a long time uh, looking at the context, and I I blew your mind with these three things that were not. That were not in America, that were not in the 1960s, and were not in Abbotsford. Not dunking on those places at all, but just that's not where we are. Instead, we live in a multicultural post-Christian, post-modern city. This is our context. And you might love that. You might hate that. That's okay. It's fine. It's where God's called us to minister. And so we need to think very carefully about that context. So we're going to finish this series and finish this passage by looking at uh, the final two. The character that we're called to have or the role that we're called to play in, um, in these half-circle tables, and then the communication that we bring to these places. So let's uh, start with looking at the character. So just like our context requires a shift, that was what I was really trying to communicate to you last week, the, the way that our minds work is we're stuck a little bit of thinking like we're in the 1960s in America and Abbotsford. We need to shift our mental context to being here. The same thing with a character, the role that we play. We have to shift our our mental paradigms. And so this is how one person, a missiologist named Alan Roxborough, who's actually from here in Vancouver, this is how he explains it. It's a long quote, but it's really helpful. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the paradigmatic text, the, 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 the key text that shaped the missionary movement and much of the formation of evangelicalism was Jesus' message in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which is also known as the Great Commission. If you're not familiar, here's what it says. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is the text. So, it's a great text, it's part of the Bible, but Western Christians took up this text in a time of political, economic, and global expansion and empire building. So the language of power that's in this text was one that matched the sense of place and privilege and requisite authority of Christians in the West. There was then a sense of moving out with the right answers for all other people because this was, it was through the West that God was shaping the kingdom of God on earth. This is not to diminish in any way the passionate, courageous work of so many missionaries who let go of their power and their sense of position and entered the towns and villages as strangers in need of hospitality so the gospel could be heard in fresh and meaningful ways. Overall, however, the interpretation of Matthew 28 came directly out of a sense of power and authority that we in modern Western culture had. He had. So what if, he says in conclusion, what if God is saying to us that the imperialism, authority, and control that have been behind our use of Matthew 28, again, there's nothing wrong with Matthew 28, but it's behind our use of Matthew 28. And that was what the data that I tried to show us last week clearly showed, that Christians are in the minority in BC, Christians are in the definite minority when it comes to Vancouver and the neighborhoods that we live in. So what if that time is over, And that the ways in which we'll rediscover the mission of God is is by not letting go of the mission, 
but by becoming new kinds of people, Luke 10 people. This will mean a massive culture shift, there's that word, for many churches and their leaders. So he's saying we need to have a shift away from this way that we thought about Matthew 28. We've used this idea of being in power and control and authority into being Luke 10 people. So there's a shift here. It's not a shift away from the Bible or away from Jesus or orthodoxy or church's family or mission. Those things all stay the same. It's just a shift in how we approach being sent. It's a shift in having a stance of control and authority and power to people who have the character that's described in Luke 10, where Jesus says, now go, same words, I'm sending you, but then he says, like lambs among wolves. This is not a powerful stance. This is a stance of sacrifice. This is a stance of weakness. He says, don't carry a money bag or a traveling bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Which doesn't mean, like, if your neighbor's like, hey, nice to see you, Karsten, that you're like, oh, like... Just being missional, Jesus loves you. Like, I'm not saying hi to you today. That's not what it's saying. The point is to say that you need to, you, you come as someone who's in need, actually. Not as someone who has power, not as someone who has control and authority, but as someone who's in need, someone who's reliant on the hospitality of others. Or as we've been saying in this series, we don't come to these missional places as the host, we come instead as the guest. That's our stance. That's what's being invita- invited for us. And that's a pretty big shift. It's a pretty big shift of the way that we've conceived of of mission in the West for the vast majority, or like last 1,500 years at least. So, what does it mean to be a guest? Well, this passage gives us three key, the passage that I read, it gives us three key ideas at least that are repeated. They're repeated several different times. So I want to take a look at them and point out what I think they teach us about what it means to be a missional guest, to have that character, to have that stance in the world. The first is this. A missional guest seeks out and relies on the hospitality of others. A missional guest seeks out and relies on the hospitality of others. We're looking for it. So Jesus tells the disciples, what we just read, don't carry a money bag. You're not taking anything. You're going to need to be reliant on other people. And then it says in the passage, whatever house you enter, it's assuming that you're going to need to go into people's houses for hospitality. When you enter a town and they welcome you. And so Jesus is telling the disciples they need to be watching for and relying on the hospitality of other people to complete their mission. Now, this can be a bit confusing because if we... Uh, look at our like diagram here of the three different tables. I, I said two weeks ago that this middle table, the table of our homes, is super, super key for us because it's the conduit between the two other tables. It's the conduit between this table and the table of mission in the world. That people are, are sent out from here, but if they're going to be sent on mission, they need to go through our homes. They need to see how life, Christian life is lived, and then they will actually be sent out into the world. And the opposite is true. Your friends and family, probably, that don't follow Jesus aren't going to be like, hey, do you want to come and partake of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ? They're going to be like, I don't think so, actually. I'm going to go for brunch. Um, they need to come through. They need to see how that plays out in our lives, in our homes. So the, the, the home, the, this dotted circle is, is super, super key for us. Um, and, and I don't want to lose that. But in our missional context, that third table, this half circle, is super important because... Um, I don't know if you've noticed from living here, but this is a pretty cold city. It's really hard to actually get to know and meet people and make friends. We're going, my in-laws live in Dallas, Texas, and we're going down there uh, in, in a week and a half. And um, one of the things I, I'm just always in awe of is, like, the hospitality in the South. Like, Southern, if you've never been to the South, Southern hospitality is a real thing. Like, people will meet you, and then they'll be like, 
you know, y'all, you want to come over for my daughter's second birthday? And I'm like, you just met me at like a mall. You should not be inviting me over for my daughter's birthday. But they're just so, they're like, don't worry, we'll throw a couple more links on the grill. You can swim in our pool. I'm just like, wow. It's just like their houses are open. It's unbelievable if you've never been to the South. They're so open and friendly. And honestly, I, it's, it's quite moving for me to be there. I grew up in a really small town where it's the same thing. People just stop at your house. And they just stop by and chat for like an hour and 45 minutes. And as the kids, you're like, Mom, it's supper time. And she's like, no, don't worry about it. And you're like, I'm starving, please. But it's like this hospitality. But Vancouver is not like that at all. And so to invite people even into our houses, especially after COVID, I find, is actually going to be a pretty big step for a lot of people. So this third space, being willing to go out to that, is really, really key and important. Let me give you an example of this in my own life, a time that I really learned this. So in 2011, our family moved down into Gastown. When we first moved to Vancouver, we started in Surrey. Then we lived in uh, Burnaby for a couple of years. And finally, we were down in Gastown. And um, I was really moved by the ministry of both Tim Keller and of this church that focused a lot on being in cities. And so the whole idea was go to the city center and then you can, you know, reach culture, reach the world from those places. So we're finally in Gastown. We're living in this apartment building. And most of the people spoke English, which wasn't true of the other buildings that we had lived in in Vancouver. So I was kind of like pretty missionally eager at that time. So I was meeting all my neighbors. And I'm like, hey, you know, great. You know, want to come over for dinner? And most of them were like, oh, actually, it's okay. Uh, maybe later. I'll get back to you on that one. And I felt a lot like when I was, uh, you know, in the dating scene. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, hey, you want to go for them? I'm like, oh, actually, uh, maybe not. Um, you can just smell the desperation, I think, a little bit. Uh, so um, anyways, so there was this one neighbor across uh, from us. His name, uh, he, he had a kid the same age. His name was John. And I'm like, oh, John, sounds like, a, I know a John. He's a great guy. You're probably a great guy. So I kept trying to invite this guy over and I'd be like, hey, you want to go get a beer? Do you want to come over? And he kept kind of like shining me off. And I was reading Alan Roxborough's book, the book that I just quoted uh, from at the time. And so I realized, like, maybe my stance needs to change. Maybe, in, and I had actually written down everyone's names and would pray for them regularly, the people on our hall, which is a little creepy in retrospect, but still. Um, and uh, I, I uh, so I kind of changed my stance, and I just thought, what if I just looked for opportunities to be invited into his house, to receive hospitality from him? Because he kept saying, like, no, it was just too, you know, like I was... It's too, too much for him to come over. So anyways, we're getting off the elevator one day, and we're just talking as we're walking back to our places. And I told him, like, oh, we're buying, a, we're putting a dishwasher into our house. And he's like, oh, we did this, we put a dishwasher into our house too. And we just start, you know, doing kind of this man thing where we're talking about dishwashers, appliances for a little while as we're walking. And um, now, I don't want to brag, but I know how to install a dishwasher, Okay. <laughs> Um, I know you guys are all like, wow, I didn't know. So great. Um, but I've done it before. But he starts telling me, oh, like, here's where the dishwasher is, and here's where, like, all the, you know, ports are and stuff like that. And so I was like, oh, you know, can I just come take a look? And he's like, sure. We're standing outside of his door. So he invites me in. We walk inside. And then we did the most, like, mannish thing ever. He gave me a kokanee. We sat there drinking a beer and looking and pointing at his appliances and being like, yeah, that is a dishwasher. <laughs> It is, absolutely. We talked for like half an hour about dishwasher and other things. And at the end of the conversation, you know what he said to me? He's like, hey, you know, um, yeah, I was like, I got to get home for dinner. He's like, yeah, you know what? We should get together for dinner, actually. I know you've been inviting us over for dinner, but yeah, well, maybe we can look at our calendar in the next couple of weeks and we'll come over for dinner. And so 
A couple of weeks later, they did. They came over. And it's not like they came into our house and they're like, please tell us about your Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't like that, but it took the next step in our relationship. But it took us actually going, me going into this space to shift my perspective, which is what this is about, to thinking of myself, how can I actually be a guest? How can I be hosted in his spot? Where are the spaces that God has opened up for you and for us to be guests? Not to be hosts, but to be guests in this world. And are you looking for those opportunities? When Jesus sends out the 72, he says, go looking for the opportunities to be hosted, to rely on other people. And I'll say this, for me, it was actually one of the ways that I could celebrate that God had gone ahead of me. You know, for so much of my life thinking about mission, I thought I was bringing Jesus places. And it always felt like that. Come on, Jesus. Like, I'm going. Are you coming? And when you receive hospitality from other people, you could be like, oh, Jesus is already here, actually. God's already at work. And now maybe I can take a different perspective, which is joining him in his work. Okay, that's the first idea. Here's the second idea that's repeated twice. Guests, it says, eat and drink what is offered. And then he says again, eat the things that are set before you. Very interesting. Now, this is one of the clearest places in this passage that we see the distinction between being a host and being a guest. If we're the host, then we control things. You control the menu. You decide what's going to be eaten and what's not, uh, what's put on the table. You decide who's invited. You decide what time things start. But if you are a missional guest, then it says you need to actually put what is, eat what is put before you. Eat what is put before you. And this is really important, not only, I would say, especially if you're entering into any cross-cultural situation, which, again, we're in a multicultural city, food is actually one of the most important ways that people offer hospitality. And so I strongly encourage you to uh, try it. Um, this, is just, this is like my, uh, I think I've, this is my last week of preaching for a while, uh, so we'll be taking vacation, so I'm just going to riff. I'm just going to tell some story. <laughs> but... Uh, I, uh, we were at a, uh, a Brandon and Christie's wedding, so it was like a 10-course Chinese dinner. Really, really nice. Uh, wonderful. And uh, we're sitting at the table. Uh, they put Jess and I, which is like the two biggest introverts here, we're at the same table. And they're like, oh, you get to meet all these new people. And we're just like, oh, man. Um, but anyways, so it's this really great Chinese meal, but then it's all these Chinese delicacies. And so this guy beside us, who was much more extroverted, kept trying to tell people what the food was. So it was like fish moss soup. And he's like, so there was a couple white people at our table, and he He's like, uh, oh, yeah, it's real good. It's, uh, it's a fish guts. Fish guts uh, soup. And you could just be like, oh, no. And he's like, oh, sorry. No, no. I mean, uh, the stomach lining of the fish. It's, uh, it's a very rare delicacy. And the people were like, that's not any better. And I was like, you just need to shut up, man. But those kinds of things, I mean, if you're allergic, don't eat them. But if, just to try it means a lot, actually, if you enter a different context. Um, here's what David Fitch says. Uh, Coming as a guest is a different energy. We go to a place, we submit to the organization and controls and issues going on in this place. I, do, I try to learn the language of this place. This is really key. I do not first sit in judgment of this place. I am a guest. Especially because I don't know the history, I don't know the stories of what's going on. I want to go from being an acquaintance to being a friend. So, such a key term, going from acquaintance to being a friend. A friend. Learn the history, learn the stories, take the time to move from just being some rando to being a friend. Jesus says, go to us, to the disciples, and it's the same pattern. Then take what is given to you. Bless it. Set it aside as something that's an offering from God. Break it and eat together with the people. 
Now, I want to make a really important, I think what's an important clarification when it comes to eating what is set before us and submitting to what's happening in a certain place. See, for the disciples, Jesus' command to eat what's put before them would have been unbelievably controversial. Because the disciples are Jewish. And so one of the ways, there's a few ways the Jewish people kind of distinguished themselves from others, and one of them had to do with food. So they, they had certain festivals that they would celebrate and meals that they would eat. But also who you ate with was very, very important in that culture. And then what you ate was very important. So there's kosher food laws. You may have heard of these. So for Jesus to say, eat what is put before you, is messing with their whole paradigm. Just like it may be messing with our paradigm. And, and so they might have heard, if, if Jesus is saying, like, eat whatever is put before you, they might have heard Luther's words where it's like, go and sin boldly. Just like, just disregard all these food laws and, and eat whatever. And, and we, on the other side, like 2,000 years later, as non, mostly non-Jewish people, were like, yeah, go eat some bacon, man. That stuff's delicious. Just try it. And for them, you have to understand how unbelievably uncomfortable that would have been. Their whole lives they've been told, no. This is actually who you are. You're defined by what you eat and who you eat with. And Jesus is saying, go put whatever is, is ahead in front of you, eat it. And, and that's not even to mention the communal element. We think of it so individualistically. If they went and ate whatever and they sat down with non-Jewish people at a table, they would probably come home and be shunned as well. Shamed and shunned from their families of origin. So this is a really big deal for them. And I think the same problem exists for us in a slightly different way. Again, if we're in a multicultural post-Christian a postmodern city in Vancouver, then there's, we're going to enter in some really weird situations when we get invited to be guests places. And we're going to be uncomfortable. And most of us don't really like, like, I'm socially awkward, so I just thrive in discomfort. But, like, most of us are not that way. And so we try to avoid being uncomfortable in situations. And I think there's two strategies that we generally choose to do that. For some of us, we navigate the discomfort by just eating whatever's put before us. We don't think about it. We fully embrace our culture. So generally, we're people who have loads of non-Christian friends, family, uh, and colleagues, and we're constantly getting invited to do stuff with them. Go to parties, go to people's houses, you know, go to concerts, do whatever. But the, in fact, we, and we, or sorry, we eat whatever's put in front of us, and in fact, we've done such a good job that we've become indistinguishable from anybody else. We look like absolutely everybody else, and so we're no longer a guest, we're just another person at the party. There's no distinctiveness, there's no saltiness, as Jesus says, to our lives. So we've lost the witness ability because we've completely assimilated into our culture. We've just gone only into the third table. For others of us, we also feel the discomfort of being with people who are going to offer us things that make us uncomfortable. So what we do is we just try to generally like, make a massive moat of Christian stuff around our lives so that we'll never be defiled by the world. And so what we do is, you know, we take Christian jobs, we send our kids to Christian schools, we go to Christian dentists and send our dogs to Christian dog sitters, and then on the way to the back from the dog sitter, we listen to Christian radio, and then we watch Christian Netflix when we get home. And it's like all these things that we just surround ourselves with more and more Christian stuff. And so what ends up happening is because there's so much distance between us and, and other people, then our missional efforts, they end up being like grenade lobs, gospel grenades, where we're just like, you know, Jesus loves you, and then it's just like, and then people on the other side are just like catching grenades, and they're like, what is going on here? This doesn't make absolutely any sense to them. Now, of course, I'm being slightly hyperbolic, okay? But I think all of us trend in one of these directions. Again, in a post-Christian, post-modern, multicultural city, we're going to face this, and we trend in one of these directions. I know which one I trend in. Do you know which one you do? And I think the way that you know is, what do you fear the most? 
Do you fear, is your number one missional fear that your non-Christian friends and colleagues and family will think you're weird? That they will reject you, possibly? That they're not going to like you anymore? Or is your missional fear the greatest missional fear that you have, that you will become tainted by the world? That you're going to be on some sort of a slippery slope? The first fear will move us to assimilate into our culture. We'll become like everybody else. The second fear will move us to shun our culture. But both of those fears, regardless of which one it is, will move us away from what Jesus is inviting us into here, which is to be a guest. To be a guest. And we will become completely ineffective in being sent by Jesus. And I, I think, to me, honestly, this is actually one of the biggest things for us. It's, it's not... Uh, I, I think this missional context is very different, and it's hard, but I think this is key. That we don't sit in this uncomfortable space of learning how to be a guest, and so we, we fall on one of the other sides. So here's the question. How do we get over those fears if we all have them around mission? Well, the answer actually is to come back to these three tables. This is a place where we're invited to bring our fears. If the goal of, of, of what we come to do here today is to be restoried, to be reconnected with God and his people, as Mayan said, then we can bring our fears to this table. To say, God, you know, I want to say nothing matters more than you. Nothing is better than you, but honestly, what my colleagues think of me is really big in my life. I have a deep fear of that. And the invitation is to come. To come be restored at this table. To come and go for prayer. Let people pray over you. And then go into the second table. Go into those places of community in our, in our, uh, in our community. And ask people. Help them to say, I, I'm struggling with being a guest. Can you help me? Can you help me discern? And then would you come along with me? We don't have time to look at this, but Jesus sends the disciples two by two. And maybe, you know, for you, you you go to parties with friends and you get sucked into the swirl of that party. And so you can't be a guest. Maybe the the, the thing is to invite somebody else. Like someone who's more socially with it than me, obviously. But like invite someone who's not going to be awkward at the party. Say, would you come with me? Because I'm going to be sucked into that life. Just come with me and be with me. Me, a Christian Christian wingman or wingwoman. Or if you're on the other side and my deepest fear is if I go to my friend's birthday party, then I'm condoning everything about their life or whatever. Would you come with me and help me be a guest in that space? So we come back to these three tables. Again, they're extended and they're connected. We come here in order to go to the next table of the homes of our communities and then to be sent out. So let's look at the final instruction that Jesus has that's repeated twice. He says, it says, remain in the same house. And then it says, shortly after, do not move from house to house. Again, this is just such an interesting quote that I think is unbelievably relevant for us today in Vancouver, in our context. Last week, I I quoted uh, Tim Keller, who said, in the past, people had a framework for the gospel, for faith in Jesus. So they believed in God, for example, or they thought that being a Christian was a good thing, or they believed in sin and an afterlife. And so he says, those are basically like, think of them like dots, if you've ever done one like those connect the dots things. And he'd say, so basically the, the, the job of the evangelist was just to connect the dots in people's life. That's what you were trying to do. But if our context is different, as we talked about last week, then the way that we witness is going to be different. It's not that there aren't dots, but they're definitely not the same ones. And so we can't just go and hand out flyers. People don't have the mental furniture for what we're talking about. You know, this hit home to me very clearly in my first ministry job. So I worked for this ministry organization, and we used this tool called the Four Spiritual Laws. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But basically, it was to connect the dots in people's lives. 
So uh, the whole idea was that there was these four laws. People would just agree with the information you were telling them because they were like, yeah, those are true, those are true, those are true, right? And it worked like supposedly like gangbusters in the you know, 20th century America. Uh, I, and, and it works in different places. So I uh, came into Vancouver and started working as a campus pastor at UBC. So one of the things that we did was we would just go talk to random strangers in the cafeteria, and we'd just sit down with them and say, like, hey, do you have a bit of time? We're a part of a spiritual group and just interested in, in hearing spiritual thoughts. So I started sharing this uh, for spiritual laws with a student that was sitting there, just like this average, you know, second-year uh, white male student. So we're just sitting there, and um, the way that I was trained was that you, you just keep going. You don't let people ask questions. Because you just keep going with the whole thing. Cause the, and so he tried to ask a question a few times, but I was like not having any of it. I was like, just wait to the end, please. And, and he was just so patient, and he listened. And I ought to be, again, not to brag, but I did a pretty good job. Okay? It went, it went really well. So we're, we're hitting the end. It's like God loves you. You know, you're sinful, but Jesus uh, paid for your sins. You could be reconnected to him. Do you want Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? That's like kind of like the, you know, that's the self. And so I said to him, you know, are you interested in having Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, that was actually really good. I didn't really, I've never heard of what Christianity is about. And that's, uh, so that you did a good job. And I was like, yeah, I did. And, but then he said, but you know, like, I don't know if God exists, because I don't know if I exist. (laughs) And I was just like, my training has not prepared me. Uh, I was like, we, there's no page we can go to if you like. If you look in Appendix 36, and I just remember being like, so if you did exist, would you want Jesus as your Lord? <laughs> but it was just like this moment where I was like, oh, I, like the dots are not being connected for you in in any uh, way whatsoever. And I, I think I, I share this because I actually think it's not an abnormal. Uh, experience for people when it comes to Christianity. And the point is we can't just dive bomb in in the same way that at other times in history they could, and that's great. And maybe there are other places that they can do that, and that's fantastic. But it's just not the way that it's going to be. And I remember thinking, walking away from that conversation, it it was one of those weird conversations because I felt like I had done a really good job. But I totally missed the point. And I realized what that guy needed was not someone to sit down with him for five minutes. What he needs is a friend. What he needs is somebody in his life who can just be with him. A community of people who can show him what it looks like to come around the presence of God. That's what he actually needed. And that's what Jesus tells the disciples and tells us. Put down roots. Stay a while. A missional guest needs to stay put. That's really what this passage is, is trying to tell us. And so let me be real practical with us here. I think one of the best things we can do if we're going to take Jesus' invitation to be missional seriously is that we can just find somewhere to go. Find somewhere to be present. Somewhere you regularly go. Something you like to do. It doesn't have to be something you hate doing. Or somewhere that God has placed you in this season. Or somewhere that God has called you to be. Maybe there is a specific place God's calling you to be. And just go there and just be pre- present regularly. Just continue to be there. Stay put. You know, for, one of me, for me, one of those places is a hockey locker room. I've been playing hockey with mostly the same guys for 10 years. And so I just am present, and slowly over time, some of those conversations bubble up. Now, some of us might say, and I know there are people like this, who are like, yeah, man, I've been being present in the same place for years and years and years. Like, nothing's happening. Same conversations all the time. And I get this. 
So I went and played. I don't usually play very much summer hockey because it's so nice outside. I don't really feel like going and playing hockey, to be honest with you. Um, so I don't play that often, but I, I still want to keep connected with the guys. So a couple weeks ago, I went and played. Uh, and, and I was driving myself. I usually catch a ride with somebody else, but this time I had to drive. So I'm, I'm driving and I'm praying along the way. So I'm praying for all these things we're talking about. God, would you make your presence known and, and make me aware of where you're at work? And then I pray for every person on my team, pray for their partners, their kids, if they have them. And uh, so after the game, not before the game, but after the game, we sit around and we usually chat. And so I'm, you know, thinking like, God, what are, where are you at work? What are you doing? And I've been praying. And the two guys beside me, so one on either side, you know what they talked about for 20 minutes? The new Diablo game. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a video game. I didn't, I mean, yeah. So anyways, they just talked about it. I didn't understand like barely a word that they were saying, to be honest. And they were just going on and on. And I tried to like interject a few times and they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, actually, I don't. You're right. So I just like sat there and there was just nothing. There was no space for me to hop in. I can, and I didn't want to be like, you know, Diablo is uh, like the devil who prowls like a lion. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, but it, it wasn't like that. And I remember, so the point is, it's like, it felt like a, like a stall out. Like what a waste of time. And I was driving back home. And I was thinking to myself, like, God, like, like, again, it was kind of that idea, like, I was there, I prayed for you, where were you in that time? Where were you in that moment? And one of the things that, it, God didn't speak audibly to me, but one of the things that just came to my head, it kind of like washed over me, is I just thought, this thought, how many times in my life has God been reaching out to me? How many times has he been ministering to me? How many times has he been trying to get my attention? And all I care about is Diablo things. The stupid inconsequential stuff that I'm focused on in my life. And, and God has just patiently again and again and again and again come back to me and offered his hand to me. Maybe Diablo's not the most important, but there is something that I have for you. And I realized in that moment that God has been so patient with me. And maybe what he's doing in that time is actually trying to draw me to become more like my God and my king, which is to develop patience in my life, which is different than apathy. It's not like, ah, I don't care. It's different than giving, excuse me, giving up. It's a different thing. And it's mimicking our God who has waited on us again and again and again and again. And so I started to pray that prayer. God, would you take the disappointment that I have and would you help me to become a person that looks like Jesus? Would you help me to become patient with my friends? And it changed the complete ride. Uh, I, I remember like putting my head down, but I was driving on highway one, so I was like very quickly back up again. Uh, don't worry. But just like just feeling overwhelmed with the presence of God in that moment. And then you know what happened two weeks later? We went. I went back. Same thing. Exactly the same thing. We stood outside till twelve thirty in the morning talking about whether people have value or not. And I was able to share with them from um, my perspective as a follower of Jesus why everybody has value. And again, it's not like people pray to receive Jesus in that moment, but it was, an, it was a very open moment. It was an opportune moment that God had prepared. And so we don't control, just like resonance, where we don't control when those moments are co- going to come up. What we have is the opportunity to be present with God and with his people. If anyone understands this disappointment, it's going to be Jesus that we experience and that we face by being present again and again. But maybe he's trying to do something different. Maybe he's actually building the character of Christ in our lives. If we come as guests, we're not in control, but we are invited to stay put and learn the character of Jesus and watch for those moments. Just continually watch for those moments where we can partner with him. So that's the character that we're supposed to have and the character that we're supposed to play. Is we're, we're, we're called to be a guest. 
So finally, what's the communication? What are we invited to communicate? There's lots in this passage. I want to just focus on, on one quick verse. It says, Jesus says to the disciples, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. So I want us to notice that Jesus gives two directives about the communication. The first is that he says, minister to people. And then he says, communicate the good news. Minister to people and then communicate the good news. And this mirrors what Jesus said in Jubilee, uh, the Jubilee announcement in Luke 4, if you remember all the way back there. The Jubilee announcement, Jesus says, this is why I'm here. He says, I'm here to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set free the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's this mixture again. I'm here to preach, to proclaim, and I'm also here to minister. These two things work together. So what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus says, heal the sick. And some of us are like, yeah, well, like, if I was just going around healing the sick, like, I think there would be a lot of room for the message that I was about to have. You know, if one of the guys on my hockey team got injured and I was just like, in the Lord's name, we heal that ankle. And it just happened. Then I think there would be loads of room for whatever I had to say after that. But that's not my experience, and I don't think that's many of, of ours. But I want us to notice here that the word heal can actually have several different meanings. The way that it's translated most often is the word serve, actually. Serve. And so are you the kind of person who is looking for people who are blind, oppressed, poor, captive to serve? That's the invitation of Jesus. And when we looked at Jesus' jubilee ministry, we do see that Jesus does do like miraculous physical healings. And you know what? As uncomfortable as this makes me, I don't want to be closed to that, the fact that that might happen. And I, I hope that we're not as a community. Again, as uncomfortable as that might make us, I want us to be open to the fact that God may heal people and that we, want, we pray along with that because there is a whole spiritual realm that is part of our, our world. If Jesus lived and ministered this way, then I think we, we want to be open to the fact that there might be things that he's doing. So every person that you meet, every friend that you have, maybe you can pray that for them. But Jesus also went around just doing things that weren't, quote-unquote, miraculous. He acknowledged those who were socially poor. He honored those who were shamed, and he advocated for those who were oppressed. For Jesus, all of those people, even though there's not something miraculous happening, all of those people have a spiritual element to what's going on in their lives. And so what he's saying to us, I think, is that every single person that we meet is an opportunity to work and pray for healing and freedom in their lives, to minister to them, to heal them, to serve them. And that jubilee ministry, that jubilee perspective, will create space for the message to preach. And this is, I know, where some of us get a little bit twitchy. Because when you think of preaching, what you think of is the guy on Robson and Granville, you know, on the milk crate, who's yelling, like, Jesus loves you, but you're going to hell, kind of like that type of thing. And um, so we know that's not very helpful in our context. And I don't think, so our our spidey sense goes up a little bit when we hear this word preaching. And let me put you at ease. Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is is saying that uh, we should be doing here. But there is a message that needs to be shared. Because if Christianity is just about us, then we wouldn't need to preach. People could just watch what we do, and they could just imitate us. Oh, they're good people, or they love each other, or they meet in homes. And then they could just do those same things, and we would become very similar. But because Christianity is ultimately not about us, but about about Jesus and what he's done, then we must preach, because he's the key to the whole story. So the way that we are in the world, the way that we act, the character that we have, opens up space for this message But the character is not the only communication. Because ultimately, if we're inviting people to this table, then they need to meet the host, the one who's provided this meal for us. 
So what is the message that we have? Well, Jesus says this, the kingdom of God has come near. And in short, I just want to say in closing here that it's two things. I want to focus on two things. The first is that it's an eschatological message. And the second is that it's an invitation to a bigger story. It's eschatological and it's a bigger story. So eschatological just means this, that there's something about the future. There's something, a hope and a longing that is touching. Something in the future that has now come present, I would say. And so all of us have these deep longings in our lives, things that we hope for. We hope for for shalom, for this full world flourishing, for things to be right with ourselves, to be right in relationship with other people, to be right in our world, in in the creation, and right with God. We long to be known. We long for wholeness. We long for reconciliation. We long for justice. These are the deepest longings of our heart. And whatever longings we have, these deepest longings of our heart, the gospel message is that those longings have touched down in the person of Jesus. That the deepest yearnings of humanity have become flesh and blood. And the second part of this message is just as important. It's that Jesus and his kingdom and our longings are so much bigger than we let ourselves believe. See, most of us, what we do with those big longings that we feel is we shrink them down. And so we say, like, oh, I long for security. But what I do is I shrink that down to money. I think, oh, yeah, if my bank balance, if my portfolio is doing okay, then I'm secure. If I finally get housing in Vancouver, then I'm secure. And we boil it down, we shrink it. Or we long to be known and to be seen, to have an identity. And so we shrink that down to pronouns, for example. If you would just accept my pronouns, then I'll finally have be known and seen. Or if you just never change your pronouns, then you'll be known and seen. Or we long for eternal love, and we shrink that down to a romantic relationship or falling in love. We say, if I could experience one of those things, then I'd finally be eternally loved. Now, there's no problem with pronouns or money or falling in love or romantic relationships. The, pr- the problem, according to the Bible, is that those, our longings are just way too big to be housed in those very small things. So here's how C.S. Lewis describes the gospel message that we have. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We live as half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I don't know about you, but for the longest time, the way that I conceived of sharing the gospel message was sharing about some sort of fire insurance or how to have your best life now or trying to convince someone that they're sinners in front of an angry God. But I love what Jesus says to the disciples and to us. That maybe the problem with us and the problem with our world is that we've allowed ourselves just to settle. We've settled for something just a lot smaller than what God has to offer. A good life. A comfortable Canadian existence. A half-hearted life, as C.S. Lewis says. And the, the vision for us as followers of Jesus is that in the gospel there's a home for our deepest desires. In the story of God, there's a place for not those things to be shrunk, but actually for our vision to be enlarged of what it means to be human, what it means to be part of this world, and what it means to have a king. And so we find that in the story of Jesus. That is what we share. That is what we take into the world. And that is what we do every Sunday as we come together around the table, as we're about to do, as we sing together, to remind ourselves 
not to live as half-hearted people, but to actually come to the story of Jesus, to come to the table of God and learn to live with full hearts wide open. Let's pray to close. God, we're grateful for this time, as challenging as this message is, and I think as um, difficult as it is, because it involves so many paradigm shifts for us to take this message and live it out in, in a city like Vancouver, in lives like ours. I pray that you would teach us the way forward. Help us to learn how to live as guests and also to learn how to communicate this message that you've given us in a way that is both winsome to people and also can invite them into something bigger, past the small stories that we shrink our lives down into. So as we come to the table today, may you, may you uh, bring us in here, may you call us towards this table. Would you send us out into the summer and into this world uh, as your messengers, as people who take our context seriously, as people who are going to be uh, taking the character of guests and also as people who want to communicate your good news to the city and to this world. So we pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.